Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a Clinical Athlete Forum where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to sports med, athlete rehab, and performance. So to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. And we've got lots of events coming up. We've got the weightlifting course, the powerlifting course. We've got awesome webinars coming up. We're adding online courses to the forum. So check all that stuff out. This podcast can also be found on our website, along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio, and reviews are always appreciated. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is a Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a physiotherapist in Ontario, Canada. He's a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. Having a good day. How's yours? Oh, that's good, man. My day is good. My day is good. Uh, good. Yeah. And we also have John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and wellness director at Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in White Plains, Maryland. He is the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong, also in White Plains, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, which is an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He is also the clinical athlete, a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor for our newest course, the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. How you doing, John? Doing well today. I'm excited for this talk because I'm getting older. Me too. 35. I'm closer to a master's athlete than you guys. You are, <laughs> well, in weightlifting, you are a master's athlete. I know. I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Early. What is it in powerlifting? I forget. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Because the... Because in weightlifting you have to be athletic, so the you lose those attributes a little sooner. Is that how that works? Or that's one hundred percent true, actually. Okay. Um, okay. And then we get all this uh, uh, assistive equipment in powerlifting that does right. all the work for you. you. And, and yeah, yeah, all that good stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, your beard looks nice. Thank you. It looks young. It looks no, Beautiful. not a day over thirty-two. <laughs> Thank you. We also have a very special guest. We're excited to welcome physiotherapist, PhD candidate, weightlifter, instructor for the Institute of Clinical Excellence for Geriatric PT, a clinical athlete provider, and co-owner of Stave Off, Christina Previtt. Christina, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you guys for having me. We're really excited. So Christina just did a webinar for us, actually, and it was titled The Rise of the Master's Athlete, Redefining What It Means to Be Older. And we thought it would be an awesome topic to talk about on the show. And it's actually one that we haven't really talked about yet. So we were super excited to get you on. Before we dive into all the stuff that we want to talk about, can you tell our six listeners a little bit more about yourself and just what's led you to your to your current interests, what you're doing, talk a little bit about Stave Off, um, and ultimately what's led you to the pinnacle of your professional career, which is being featured on the Clinical Athlete Podcast. <laughs> I feel like you gave a perfect Sparks Notes version of my day-to-day life, um, but I'm a PT up in Ontario, Canada, so I'm close actually to where uh, Jared is, and uh, I graduated five years ago, and at that time, I was competing as a CrossFit athlete, so I started working in a very traditional ortho practice as well as contracting out as a physical therapist in a CrossFit gym, and so 
when I was in the CrossFit space, I was able to use a little bit more of a blend of strength and conditioning principles with some of my older clients. And I was getting into this issue where we would do a strength and conditioning program. People's pain would go down. I would discharge. They would decondition. They'd be back in three months. And I was thinking about this spiral and was just racking my brain saying like, you know, this really doesn't make sense. We really need to be thinking about better prevention and maintaining of strength. So I went back and started my PhD. So my PhD started in 2015 on a part-time basis. And I was looking at high intensity strength training for individuals at risk for mobility or functional decline. So I essentially got individuals who are at risk for frailty and I got them squatting, deadlifting, doing ring rows, pressing overhead, all of these things that probably traditionally in maybe not the clinical athlete population, but in a traditional rehab setting would be considered very risky type of movements and was able to show that we saw improvements in physical function, balance, self-reported mobility decline, et cetera, et cetera. And so as I was going through my PhD, I was like, well, we have the research that we need to be challenging our older clients to stay stronger, essentially using strength and conditioning principles and layering them on top of our clinical reasoning, but it's not happening in practice. That's one of the biggest issues with the, the Choose Wisely campaign came out in 2014. And the second thing was the underdose of older adults, like the underdose strength training of older adults being the biggest issue in our profession. And that's how Stave Off started. So I said, well, let me become my own knowledge translation experiment. Say, okay, this is what we know in research. How can I make this work from a business perspective? And how can I like work with insurance companies, um, other older adults? How would I market to the older adult, et cetera, et cetera, to make this work in practice? And so since starting Save Off three years ago, now I've been working with our college. You guys had Scotty Butcher on the podcast as well. Um, him and I have been working together a little bit around trying to define regulations for health and wellness initiatives for physical therapy in Canada and just kind of figuring out what the model looks like so that we're not abusing and kind of going too much into the fitness space, you know, like the 20-year-old who has a history of cardiovascular disease in his family may not be able to bill through insurance, but that we still can provide health and wellness services for older adults. So that kind of brought me to stave off. And then the Institute of Clinical Excellence came up because we were talking in the Senior Rehab Project, which is a Jerry PT-focused Facebook group. And the biggest thing that was coming up was that there is no continuing education for older adults. Like it's kind of seen as like a, oh, you can do this too in Jerry, but not like this is how you as a provider working solely in geriatrics can navigate your space and continue to challenge some of your clients. And so the Institute of Clinical Excellence um, with Jeff Moore picked uh, Dustin Jones and I up for the modern management of the older adults. And so we've been teaching that course and he is in home health and I'm in outpatient orthopedics. So I got the chance to, we, we kind of blended worlds and got to see people across the continuum of function. And then the last thing that is kind of like my last piece is the master's athlete collective. And so I would get people talking to me all the time and being like, 
Christina, you are a crazy physiotherapist who is making me do this. I am 70 years old. There is no way that this is something that I should be doing. Like I should be essentially like resting or keeping on the low intensity side. And so the Masters Athlete Collective was born to say, oh yeah, here's this 80-year-old runner and here's this 97-year-old who is had a, was in ICU for three months because of a hernia issue. And here is this 45-year-old track athlete who is still like doing pole vaulting and all these type of things. And so I started collecting all of these positive aging stories and examples around the master's athlete uh, to try and really highlight the fact that we are still capable of competing in sport, even if some of our goals are changing or our motivations change as we get a little bit older. Um, and that kind of brought me full circle. That's so awesome. And you talked about it a little bit in there. What are some of the unique? Oh, actually, I want to I want to take a step back. What are some of the misconceptions about training masters athletes or rehabbing masters athletes? You touched on a few there, but can you just kind of go into some of the misinformation that's out there and, and why we seem to be almost afraid to push this population? Yeah. So I I think part of that starts in rehab for the older person. So we tend to be on the conservative side because we're so afraid to inflict pain or flare up some chronic musculoskeletal issue. Um, But sometimes if we are underdosing our older clients, we are actually probably doing more harm than good because now we are not helping them to increase their functional capacity and reserve to get them further away from that loss of independence line, we are actually just facilitating it. So if we aren't actually adequately challenging our older clients, then we're not improving their resiliency. We are actually just like allowing them to continue down towards that loss of independence. So I would argue that even in the presence of musculoskeletal issues, that progressive overload specificity and challenging of those musculoskeletal systems is going to be super important because now we're looking at loss of function, not just pain. Um, The second thing is with my master's athletes, they don't necessarily, their goal isn't to be 100% pain-free, especially if they're the master's athlete that's been doing this for 25 years. They have injuries They have surgeries. They have things that are creaky and cranky and require a little bit longer to warm up. They just want to continue to be able to participate in a relatively pain-minimized or optimized way. So I think when when you guys have talked about this on the podcast a lot, is like we tend to associate physio with getting people pain-free when sometimes that may not be their goal. They may be looking to be able to manage their pain or manage their issues in order to be able to continue to participate. Um, Just like the, the open level athlete who's three weeks out from nationals and doesn't think they're going to cure whatever ailment they have. They just want to compete at nationals. And so that kind of thing, that kind of thinking we need to translate over to a master's athlete population so that we are facilitating their ability to continue to uh, participate rather than say, you know, you are 66. You probably shouldn't be doing track anymore, which is, which is the common, like you guys are kind of laughing, but that is like, that is the predominant prevailing message in healthcare saying, you know, that's high impact. You know, you're 60 
And that's not what the master's athlete wants to hear. That will instantly lose therapeutic alliance with that client. But that's the prevailing messaging, unfortunately. So we kind of have to do a little bit of a paradigm shift, I think, and start really trying to help facilitate and advocate for these clients rather than discourage movement. And that's something I think people see and I don't want to say complain, but complain about pretty frequently is they go uh, to, to PT or they go somewhere for treatment. And the first thing they're told is, well, you just need to stop doing that. Um, which you're going to lose them pretty quickly. Uh, how do you define a master's athlete? Yeah. So, uh, my definition is slightly different than the official definition. So my, the official definition of a master's athlete is somebody over the age of 35 or 40, depending on the sport who continues to actively train, participate and compete in sports. In my world and in my practice, that is anybody who is trying to remain active and push themselves through whatever exercise modality they love, whether on a recreational or competitive level, to optimize their physical function through age. So for me, I have a wider definition. So some of my older clients who are at Savoc participating in the gym programming but aren't competing, I would still consider them master's athletes because they're trying to get stronger. They're really trying to push themselves. Sometimes they'll do like the, a Spartan race or an obstacle course race or something, but they wouldn't necessarily call themselves competitors. I would still place them under the master's athlete umbrella, but that's just me. That's not the official definition. That sounds like uh, Quinn, what you've said a couple of times where if anybody's trying to do anything remotely active, you'll consider them an athlete, whether they're good or not at that thing is sort of besides the point. Or whether they compete, they're just, even if they don't compete in the organized form of whatever they're doing, they're still competing against training, you know, against adaptation and and themselves. So it's, it's still that same kind of mindset. Christina, what's the, what would you say average age of like, do you have a cutoff? (laughs) Like if somebody's a certain, how do you, how do you work that? If somebody's a certain age, do you kind of say, oh, you know, I think you can, you're young, you're young enough to be over here. You're, you're, you're above that age where you can now work with us. Or how do you navigate that? First day you mean? Yes. Yeah. So we actually have, um, so part of my PhD, this is kind of a side part was that I did a scoping review of the evidence-based roles of physical therapists in health and wellness. And I mapped it across a lifespan. So around like athlete development, prehab, injury prevention, pre-postpartum moms, uh, chronic disease self-management or prevention of chronic disease, um, and then kind of along the aging continual falls prevention. So we actually have a general exercise program as well. So I'll kind of say, you know, this are, we have prime and conquer. So prime is our general exercise class and Conquer is kind of geared more to 50 plus. So we have more people who have different orthopedic injuries, have are trying to prevent or on the list for, or have had um, joint replacements, for example, um, have cardiovascular issues, that type of thing. They may want to be more in our Conquer class. So they kind of have the option, but we have plenty of people in their 60s and and 70s that are in our regular class programming as well. It's just kind of where they feel most comfortable. And with our 50 plus group in particular, it's the social construct of it where you're not beside someone who's 21, um, who's ripping their shirt off and whatever. We don't have that anyway at Stave Off, but, but we have people who have come from 
across the gym, for example, and it just felt it just wasn't their fit. And so um, having people who, you know, are in their 60s and have come along that journey of, of health and wellness and can talk to about their own stories, that that positive aging stereotype um, is really powerful in our conquer class. So we just tend to see where people feel most most comfortable and most willing to participate. The community aspect sounds huge. It sounds oh, like yeah. a big key. Yeah. One of Did the you prin- call that class Conquer? Sorry. Yeah. Conquer. That is awesome. That's a great name. Yeah. So we did it as very like, um, we didn't want to call it like the Golden Girls class. <laughs> not that that's bad. Not that that's bad. But for us, we were looking for very like strong, empowering words for our programs. And so it came from like a workshop that I did called Conquering Arthritis. And so we just kind of named the class conquer so that it would be just, you know, you, you never think of something like you never think of a, an 80 year old who's frail and feeble, like some of those quote unquote negative aging stereotypes when you hear the word conquer. So we just never wanted it to be associated with anything like that. Well, no, that's true because we talk about perception and buy-in uh, therapeutic alliance and all this other stuff when it comes to clinical practice, but we always kind of, nobody really talks about that when it comes to after clinical practice and using a word like conquer in this population can, can create that positive uh, imagery and and outlook of training right off jump street. I, I, sorry. I just, I love that name. That's, that's really, really cool. Yeah. People like love slash hate when I'm the one coaching the class because they realize that it doesn't matter what orthopedic injury they have. They're not really getting out of anything because Mm -hmm. I'll be able to know what's going on and modify appropriately to still get the adequate stimulus. So they're like, there's nothing that gets like left behind. Like you never miss anything. I can't slack off ever. If you're the first coach in the class. That's the point. Yeah, exactly. It's cool because the name is no, it's not something that you change because of a certain age. It's just like what you said, like the principles of training don't change either. It's, these suggestions of, well, you're of a certain age. So now let's think about doing other things or not doing this thing. That just kind of arbitrary line of demarcation. That's essentially made up without even taking into consideration the person in front of you. So though, I think it's awesome. And I also love the point that you made about this population, maybe understanding that pain free is not necessarily the goal, but that's like not a negative thing. That's a like they have, a you know, I think it probably comes down to just having life experience and, and having managed lots of things over the course of a lifetime and understanding that things come and go and things get better and not to kind of like freak out about certain things where I think maybe the younger population just doesn't quite have that pattern, you know, or things might be a little bit more new. So I, I love that. That's, that's amazing. I think that really, really helps the process. So we talk about stereotypes, you know, how this, this population is no different than any other human population. What are some of the unique aspects, though, of the master's athlete? Maybe some considerations that you would take into account. Yeah. So the thing that I think about the most with the master's athlete is um, their reserve. So when we talk about aging physiology, and it can be in the musculoskeletal system, but it can be across all organ systems, we're thinking about aging as a reserve issue. And so we have a reserve that is optimized or reaches a peak between 30 and 50, depending on what system we're talking about. And then we see a gradual decline across 
organ systems, the musculoskeletal system, strength, power, et cetera, that have differing rates. Over time, we also have wear and tear on the body from potentially beating ourselves up in our 20s, 30s, 40s, or having 20 years of sedentary behavior. So the only differences that I really see with the master's athlete is trying to understand where they are in terms of uh, their process along the aging continuum and adding that as an additional layer. So I always say like aging, age needs to be a factor in your programming and your rehab, but it doesn't need to be a limiting factor. It just has to be considered because our ability to recover and our ability to, um, to handle the volume that somebody who is in their twenties would be able to handle is obviously not realistic. So that would be the only thing, but there's huge variability in that. Like if we're looking at some of the aerobic capacity literature in the master's athlete, oftentimes a young sedentary control is not statistically significantly different from a master's endurance athlete. And if you really like let that sink in, that how much we are really able to maintain as we get older, obviously the the elite youth athlete and the elite master's athlete, there's going to be some discrepancies. But the fact that we have a fairly sedentary youth population in general, we could probably argue that, um, that our master's athletes are along the same level in terms of VO2 max and some of their aerobic markers is, is pretty incredible. So that's kind of the way that I think about it more than anything else. So the consideration on recovery seems important to me and and also the history, the, the older you are, the more time that you've had to accrue a history of things. So that may, you know, kind of affect your starting point. Do you, do you find that the recovery, so do you find that a master's athlete is able to push, is able to push intensity relatively hard? It's, it's how fast they're able to bounce back. It's like the repercussions from that, from the, the recovery standpoint is, is the bigger difference. Yeah, absolutely. When we're looking at, um, so the master's athlete literature is relatively in its infancy and we see a lot more on the master's endurance athlete than the master's strength athlete. So when I'm talking about some of these studies, it is unfortunately more geared to the endurance athlete, though I think we'll see more literature coming out in the strength athlete. Um, but in terms of the amount of times they are training per week, it, between youth athletes and master's athletes, there's not a huge amount of discrepancy. For endurance athletes, they still end up in that five to six times per week. In the strength athlete, we see that they're probably in the three times per week versus the younger strength athlete, which is probably in the four to five times per week. So we're probably seeing that that is where their ability to recover is coming into play so that they feel most comfortable and able to progress with slightly less training frequency. And that would be where the reserve, I think, part would come in and the recovery between sessions would come in. In regards to, to loss of function and muscle mass and these types of things, what are we seeing actually in, in as we get older in regards to being able to maintain muscle, being able to f grow new muscle, being able to, you know, hi our hypertrophy response? What are the differences as we age from a, from a master's athlete to a younger athlete or in through that spectrum? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we start to see declines in strength at age 50 and that accelerates at age 70. The rate of decline is mitigated by training. We see power lost um, almost exponentially faster than raw strength. 
So weightlifting performance is going to decline uh, significantly faster, unfortunately, than powerlifting. And uh, we do have like the, the research to type of support that we've looked at kind of records and that type of thing. Um, we think that the reason behind that is we tend to see an increased loss of type two muscle fibers over type one. So those fast twitch fibers tend to be lost at a quicker rate. Um, so that's going to impact if we continue to train speed, uh, and reactionary power, again, we can save some of that loss, but unfortunately some of it is like, is just, we, we can't fix that. It's just a necessary part of the aging process. Um, so that's kind of what, what we're seeing in terms of loss in terms of hypertrophy, um, as we get into our, especially our fifties and women transition through menopause, um, the loss of estrogen and progesterone is going to have implications for bone mineral density and our sex hormone response, which we know is really important in muscular physiology. And we're going to see a decline in testosterone absolute levels in men. So their ability to create bigger muscle um, is more impaired than a younger person. Not impossible, um, but if you're already at a fairly high level, you're probably looking to try and maintain that muscle bulk for as long as we can. When we're looking at adaptations for the master's athlete and strength and power, especially when athletes are getting into their 50s, 60s, 70s, um, we're starting to see that the adaptation response is probably more at the neuromuscular level than at the hypertrophy level. So we're seeing uh, a mitigation of loss of motor units. So the uh, ability, the contractile properties of the nerve to the muscle and potentially re-sprouting of some of the motor units so that we're getting an increased recruitment with training. And so that's so I do, I get clients in their fifties and sixties who are like, you want me to strength train? Like I'm a runner. I want, I don't want to get bulky, but the reality is like that, the hormone profile, especially the sex hormone profile just wouldn't actually allow that to happen. And so, um, that's kind of some of the changes that we're seeing with, um, within the physiological perspective of hypertrophy and driving that change. How much direct education do you actually do for your clientele for things like sarcopenia and osteopenia and osteoporosis? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when we're talking about an older person, I always balance fear and hope with those clients. So um, if people aren't aren't familiar with the term sarcopenia. It's a clinical geriatric syndrome, which is a multifactorial health condition, which um, links to a clinical level of muscular weakness. So a lack, a lack of muscle bulk as well as muscular performance that's leading to risk for um, loss of ability for ADLs and IADLs. The issue with some of those terms is that they're very negatively stigmatizing. So nobody wants to be called frail. <laughs> nobody wants to say, oh, I'm sarcopenic. Um, so most of my education is on optimizing function rather than highlighting decline. Um, though in terms of where um, I can make my justifications for, for rehab would probably be more in characterizing individuals across the spectrum of sarcopenia and the spectrum of frailty. Cool. Kind of like one of those things where what you write in your medical records and what you're, you know, how, how you're kind of like framing it for the insurance companies and these types of things may be actually a little different than what you're telling the person in front of you. 
Yeah, unfortunately. So I talk a lot when I'm talking about frailty, I always think about like the impact of the label. So if you were to be diagnosed with diabetes, for example, you are placed into a clinical care pathway where you are probably getting your HbA1c levels checked every three months to see kind of what the trend in your blood sugar has been. It may trigger a referral to foot care. You would probably see your primary care physician a lot more frequently. So there is there is a, a initiation of events that happens with that labeling. If you're introduced as having frailty, there's bias on the side of the clinician and there is no like care pathway. It's just something that's potentially negatively stigmatizing. And so the research in frailty is starting to look at how do we transition away from that and actually do use the label for something rather than knowing that it increases healthcare utilization, makes hospitalization longer, length of stay longer, all those type of things that we know as a consequence of frailty. Yeah, it's just like a reality of the situation type of thing, but it's also like, yeah, you know, this is a thing that this is a thing that can happen and let's let's go have some fun and get strong. You know, it's yeah. not, you don't have to make it a a big this big thing, you know, this big deal because you're going to be doing the same thing with them anyway. It's like why why plant the seed? You'll get make them aware of the reality of the situation, you know, as as best you can. But um, I, I love that approach. And then you've got that community with them where it becomes fun, you know. And it's not just about okay, we got to build muscle now. Go hit your three sets of ten. <laughs> but like that's not fun either. And then you hit, and then you compliance is probably not that high. If, also, if it's somebody who's never done that stuff, maybe it was never fun to them. To, to begin with. And that's why they're running into some of these issues down the line. So I, I think that's really great. You, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned power um, or just like kind of rate of force. So we, we had Eric Lagoy on the podcast. So we talked a little bit about that too. I wanted to ask you, how do you train power for your master's athletes? And how do you kind of define that? Um, is it, is it its own separate training modality or are you just maybe more simplistic and in, in do things like tempo and, and all these types of things. Yeah. So it depends on the sport of the master's athlete, or if it's just somebody who I have flagged, for example, who has issues with reactionary control and is at risk for falls because of that. So if I have a master's athlete who's an Olympic weightlifter, I feel like the power part is easy. We're going to train specific to the sport in whatever way they're still able you know, like a, a split snatch is more common in a master's level athlete than in an open level athlete in terms of their ability to still participate in that movement. So if that is the case, then I'm, I'm training specific to their sport. The same is true with track and field and endurance runners. If I'm working in a general geriatric population and I'm trying to incorporate strength, I usually take the modalities that I'm using in my strength training program and add an aspect of speed. So take the there's um, a really nice systematic review that looks at optimizing power development at different percentages of one rep max for different functional tasks. So we actually know, you know, like first sit to stand, for example, that 40 to 60% of your one rep max is where you can optimize power and speed in an older population. So if I know what their one rep max is relatively, usually I use an indirect measure of estimating that, then I can take it down to 40 to 60% do a bunch of squats or sit to stands at that percentage and just say stand up as fast as you as can as quickly as you can yeah. yep yep and conjugate for the, for the seniors 
Well, okay, funny story. I was in a gym one time and I was just, I was traveling. So I was in this gym and there was a personal trainer who was working with a 67 year old woman. And like, that's awesome. But I made the mistake of listening to what they were doing. And my husband had to like escort me out. He was like, he was like doing strict press and he was doing GVT with her. Like 10 by 10 strict press with a 67 year old woman who did not have full range of motion. And he was like kind of pushing into like end range that she probably wasn't that ready for, especially at that volume. And he's like, you can just tell your kids that you do GVT training. And I was like, oh she doesn't gosh. care about GVT training. And I'm like, I could feel like myself just like, like wanting to help and intervene. And my husband's like, you need to get out of here. Like you're going to, you're going to pop a top about that. So, um, but that's just like a funny random story that I had about when you said conjugate method, it reminded me of that. <laughs> stand with these chains real quick. <laughs> yeah. German yeah. German volume training for those who don't know. So go go hit your ten by ten squats. Boys yeah. and girls. Tell me how you feel after. <laughs> um, the percentage for that starts relatively high too, if I remember correctly. It's brutal. It's pretty brutal. It's pretty yeah. pretty rough. But it's adapt awful. or die. If you make it through, you're going to have something. Natural selection accelerated. Uh, yeah. Um, so that I love that. And with the with your weightlifting population, and we're talking about the sport being powerful in general. So that's easy, right? You just do the sport and. Your, your cues maybe aren't necessarily different. Like we cue our weightlifters to move fast, 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 fast. We're saying that all the time, faster, faster. And maybe there would be this, this, um, I don't know, um, te- temptation to not use those types of terms with the master's athlete because you don't, because of that, fr- that frailty stigma, right? Well, just, you know, just do it to your comfort level or something like that. But speed is relative to their ability also. So if you say move fast, they're only going to move as fast as they're able to move anyway. It's, it's, it's about intent. So if the, if the intent of the adaptation of the, of the quality is there, then that's, that's hopefully what they're going to be developing. So again, it just kind of comes back to what you said. I love the point of age is a consideration. It's certainly a consideration. But it's not a limiting factor, so you just just keep that in mind. We don't have yeah. to, yeah. We see that a lot with intensity too in the geriatric literature. So when you hear high intensity interval training, you think like CrossFit or like like these these people dying on treadmills, just like sweating their brains out. But for the older population, they're still working at a high intensity. It's just relative. It's the same thing with power. You're getting people to work quickly or with speed, but that speed is relative to where they are from a physiological perspective. And so I think sometimes people just get this wrong idea when they they hear these words and it's just a semantics issue where we have to realize that, like again, high intensity, my older clients are working at a high intensity, but it's a high intensity for them. So yeah, we see that a lot. It's kind of rehab in general. Rehab is is the training principles still apply. You're just maybe at a different starting point. So if you have a if you have an experienced younger athlete and a relatively inexperienced masters athlete, things don't necessarily change the overall picture. It's just like the starting point and the progression. You know, maybe different. Yeah, absolutely. When I'm teaching the modern management of the older adult course, which is to outpatient orthopedic therapists, but also to um, uh, therapists who are working in like skilled nursing facilities, the title of the talk is tr- uh, 
treating older adults like master's athletes because we go through the principles of strength training and then we add in some of the layers like clinical geriatric syndromes, cardiopulmonary physiology and compromise, all those type of things. But again, it's, it's scaling. So the person, you still have to systematically think through these things like you would as a strength coach trying to progress an older athlete, but you're just adding in the extra layer of that potential comorbidities, functional limitations, that type of thing, cognitive decline. So that's really interesting. And I, I know we didn't have any papers for this one, but when you go to and do talks like that, do you find that you also find uh, fear avoidance behaviors by the actual clinicians as well, as as opposed to just the patients and the, the elderly individuals you see? Because Level Up and Steph Allen posted a paper the other day about fear avoidance beliefs in clinicians and how that spills over into our treatment programs and protocols. So do you experience that quite a bit too? Like, well, I don't want to do that with an older patient because I'm afraid I'm going to hurt them or some clinicians have this belief of frailty that's not necessarily accurate. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually funny. So Dustin, who I speak with, we just pulled that 2006 paper. Um, So it was GPs, it wasn't physios, but it was GPs perceptions and low back pain and how it can influence uh, outcomes. Mm -hmm. But absolutely. We were just teaching a course in South Dakota and we had a lot of uh, clinicians, more that were working in assisted living facilities and skilled nursing facilities, and we were teaching them like a continuum to, to progress a squat and a deadlift in this course. And I had a couple of them come up to me and say, I haven't been doing this for 20 years because I was afraid that I would hurt my client. And you're teaching me like how to get people to pick things up off the floor. And so for me, those are like, those are my big wins when I'm teaching because we are addressing that fear avoidance type of behavior. Um, And it it does tend to be really common. Like uh, a good example is uh, hip precautions after um, a hip replacement. So in t- starting in 2002, we started getting literature that the hip precautions actually don't really re- reduce the rate of dislocation. And so the recommendation based on a systematic review that was published in 2015 was to get rid of them. And we were talking about this at the course. And I even know that when I am flexing somebody who's early post hip replacement past 90, that I can feel it like because in school, it was like, you do not flex past 90. You do not rotate that hip. You do not cross your legs. Like, you do not bend over to pick something up. Like, I have been so ingrained with that. And I, I looked at the literature. I read the studies and everything like that. And some of the surgeons have said, you know, don't worry about it. But I can still feel that, that drive to be conservative and watch what I'm doing, even though I know the literature. So it's a really good example of, you know, that's probably limiting my that would have limited my ability to progress them at a a rate that would be appropriate for them because I was trying to be conservative. And is that really helping my client? So we see it a lot, a lot. Christina, what are your views on the, I guess maybe your, how do you educate on degenerative changes in the master's athlete? And this is a big question and it could go, we could just pick your body part, right? Rotator cuff, degenerative rotator cuff tear, Lumbar spinal degeneration, hip, knee, all of it, all of the above, right? <laughs> I guess 
because my views on these things, I think the pendulum swings a little bit. And I think there's a, you know, the, the biomedical model would say these things 100% correlate to pain and they, and decreased function. It's, we're just a wrench, rusty hinge, that, that side. I think the pendulum, the pendulum can swing though a little bit too far to the other side to, to say that these things aren't even contributing factors in, in any respect to movement or function or, um, potentially the, the, the perception of pain. Where do you fall on that continuum? And then how also do you educate and use the literature to educate your patients who are coming in? A lot of them probably with these degenerative changes. And unfortunately, they probably know about it because they have a, a medical history of imaging and these types of things. Yeah, that's an amazing, amazing question. Thank you. So, Thank you very much. <laughs> and I, we, yeah, way to go, Quinn. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, there, there's two examples that I think are really pertinent to the master's athlete. One is in the back, so degenerative disc disease, and one is the hip and knee. So, and the reason why I bring them both up separately is because the literature is actually different on these body parts. So, in regards to the back, I hate the word degenerative disc disease because it sounds super scary and it's just arthritis in the spine. Um, that's my own bias. But what we know from the literature very strongly is that degenerative changes are going to happen over time. It's why we lose height. We lose space in the disc. That is a very normal part of the aging process. Because of that, in the Canadian system, now what we've known is that what we see on x-ray and MRI isn't necessarily guiding our treatment very well. And because of that, in the Canadian system, uh, primary care physicians have to justify and give a good justification as to why they're spending a client for an x-ray or an MRI related to low back pain. And if they do not have that justification, then they have to pay out of pocket. So in that case, the literature isn't supporting that these degenerative changes are leading to changes in medical management. And because of that, they've actually retracted how much funding that they are getting for those imaging services. We've tried to do, yeah, we've tried to do the same thing for arthritis in the hip and knee. And you're right, it is a huge pendulum swing because now we are having physical therapists and rehabilitation professionals say, it doesn't matter if you have bone on bone arthritis, you just need to get stronger or you just need to do this or you just need to do that. What the literature shows is that it's very multifactorial, that you can have individuals who have a lot of joint space narrowing at the joints in the lower extremity with no pain, which led people to say, well, that means that the x-ray doesn't matter. But we also have literature to support that people who are having sym symptomatic hip or knee pain and show progressive loss of joint space on x-ray are more likely to have increased pain and increased disability versus those who haven't shown progression on x-ray. So what that means to me is that one, it's multifactorial, right? So there's going to be things other than just the fact that you have joint space narrowing that is going to decide if you are um, having a symptomatic presentation of arthritis or not. And two is that serial x-ray imaging does have a place. And so because of that, when, again, I, I'm speaking to the Canadian system, when we are 
deciding if a person is going to go on the list for a joint replacement, there are two major contributing factors. Is there signs of progression of arthritis or reduction in joint space on x-ray? And what is a person's subjective presentation? Like what is their level of pain, disability, loss of function, quality of life? And in conjunction with those two factors, which makes sense and it completely correlates with what the literature is saying, then we will make that decision. And so I think um, we have to be very careful to not do selection bias with the, the research because there is research to support that people can have no pain and also show deterioration on x-ray. But we also have the literature that says, especially in a lower extremity arthritis in the hip and knee, that sequential x-rays with progressive decline, you are more likely to see an increase in pain and an increase in disability. So I think, you know, the answer is, is in the middle. And um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be able to keep up with the literature to kind of to make an informed choice with that in terms of how I educate my clients. So I tend to be more on the biopsychosocial side for back pain, and I tend to be a little bit more in the middle for hips and knees. That makes that makes a lot of sense to me. I love the last point that you made. I I'm informed enough to to have the conversation because it's not going to be like no matter what, it's not going to be all right. This is probably what you should do based on based on this. It's it's going to be well. It's informed consent, right? So they, they, you're, you're informing the patient of their options and, and their presentation and what we currently know, taking all their factors into account, what we currently know, it will hopefully lead to the, the most likely outcome. And that's, that's the best that we can do. Um, so that's interesting. And uh, for me, it's refreshing to hear that it's, that you're taking that not as a blanket statement one way or the other, but you're taking into account uh, the different body parts and, and, you know, considering both sides of things. Um, I'm a big pendulum swing guy. So my, my pendulum swings and then, um, always meet right back in the middle. So it was, it was interesting to hear that. What research would you like to see come out in, in the next five years or so that would guide your practice a little bit more? What, what questions do you still have? Or maybe research that you plan to do yourself? <laughs> Don't get me to do another PhD. Somebody's already said that. I'm, I'm 36 weeks pregnant. So everyone's like, there's no literature on strength training and uh, like uh, like competitive powerlifting, weightlifting training and strength training. You should do a PhD on that. I'm like, let me finish one PhD first <laughs> before you put me into another one. Um, but I would like somebody. Um, so the way that the master's athletic world has kind of evolved is that uh, swimming and track and field were the the two sports to first start implementing age group categories. And so when we're looking at the literature, it really reflects that. So we see a lot more research being done on the endurance or the power endurance uh, type of athlete. So I would love to start seeing individuals follow powerlifters, follow weightlifters, follow crossfitters too, um, and see kind of um, some of the physiological changes or lack of physiological changes and declines that we're seeing in the world of, of strength-focused sport, uh, because right now the, the research on that is actually relatively sparse. So that would be probably the biggest gap that I would like to see, because right now I'm just making inferences from what we know in like track and field 50 meter for indoor and 100 meter sprints, for example, and trying to translate that over to my strength and power athletes with what I know about physiology. 
but it would be nice to, to see somebody kind of focus on that a little bit more. It would seem like it would be easier to do as well because the sport is very objective as far as like just the load progression. Yeah, well, yeah, because the, the cross-sectional data in the endurance level um, world is kind of looking at re- uh, records over time. So they're looking at longitudinal data from the 70s, which I don't know how much of that would actually be available for weightlifting and powerlifting. I'm sure it's there. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's going to be more ability to research these athletes because the biggest thing we're seeing is that in terms of record-breaking events, the master's age group categories, especially in the 50 plus age group, are breaking records on a consistent basis, uh, much more than the younger cohorts are. And that is probably a reflection of participation in the sport and people who are continuing to be active and, and pushing their boundaries. And so, um, we're going to have a bigger pool in both on both sides, on the endurance side and the the strength side. Um, and that is so clear from just me trying to get profiles for the Masters Athlete Collective. Sometimes I can't keep up with with the the, the graphic design work behind it because I get reached out to all the time, especially as the platform is growing a little bit, which is awesome. What are some of the principles that you were taking? You mentioned the sprinting literature, the track and field literature. What are we learning from that? Or, or what were some of the principles that you were finding from that that were kind of like light bulb moments that, oh, I can try to apply this, you know, to my population? Yeah. So one of the things that was really nice and pleasantly surprising was around uh, training frequency is that people are still training at a relatively high level in track and field, which for endurance, we tend to see a lot like their training volume can potentially be a little bit higher, especially if it's cycling and swimming, but track and field, we're seeing master's athletes still train pretty hard and pretty often. So I've been able to translate that over. And then um, their ability to still maintain speed work has been um, a big one for me around how that can translate over. So um, some of that reactive training and, and those type of programming variables are still continuing to be applied in that population. And so I've continued to apply them in my strength athletes. Is aging just deconditioning? (laughs) I've been quoted for that, which is hilarious. I did a podcast as normal aging, just deconditioning. And I would say kind of some of it. So there's going to be a certain level of decline that we can't control. Um, But that being said, we also know that sedentary behavior goes up by a lot as we get older Um, especially into our 50s, 60s, 70s. And so we have almost 70% of our community dwelling older adults in Canada uh, who are completely sedentary, do zero activity. And the literature on sedentary behavior says that in order to uh, mitigate the negative consequences of sedentary behavior, they would have to participate in 60 to 75 minutes of moderate to vigorous intensity exercise to combat those changes. And so other than the master's athlete cohort who may be actually doing that, um, some of normal aging is just lack of movement. Well, I think the things that you got going on and the education that you're putting out there is is definitely putting a dent in that. Um, this was a great, great conversation. What projects do you have coming up and what do you got coming down the pipeline in regards to the Masters Athlete Collective, Stave Off, Institute of Clinical Excellence, all that stuff? Yeah, so um, I'm really trying to grow the Masters Athlete Collective. I think 
the goal for me is to get between 500 and 1,000 profiles of people across 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s I would love um, who are continuing to participate in sport. Um, and then I'm hoping from that, like my long-term plan with the Masters Athlete Collective would be get, to get a group of physical therapists who are specializing in different sports and have them provide programming for Masters Athletes with the consideration of some of the clinical variables as well as the um, the performance side of things and kind of blend the two together. Um, in terms of the Institute of Clinical Excellence, I've actually just taken on a second course. So I teach the Modern Management of the Older Adult course, um, where which is a live and an online cohort, which works to, we kind of have the hashtag old not weak, where we're trying to really push the, the progressive overload part for exercise prescription with the geriatric population. And then we actually just launched a pregnant and postpartum athlete course, which I'm going to be leading. So if you, what we saw, and this comes true in the master's athlete, there's so much about peeing on the platform and all that kind of stuff. But we saw as a huge gap was we have internal pelvic floor physical therapists, and then we have orthopedic physical therapists who don't even want to touch it, who are just like, no, I'm going to refer, but um, sometimes they're not asking the right questions. So the idea with this course is for individuals who don't want to be internal pelvic floor physical therapists, how can we help our pregnant and postpartum moms still continue to be active and participate and perform considering all of the changes that happen through a woman's, a woman's body as she goes through pregnancy and into that postpartum period. Um, so I'm, I've linked up with an internal pelvic floor therapist, but we're looking on the, the performance musculoskeletal non-internal side. Um, Cause I want to get guys, like I want to get more men like comfortable saying, you know, like, how was your pregnancy? How was your post? Like, how was your delivery? And now you're having back pain. Like, what are some of those considerations and feel comfortable with that? But I feel like sometimes when it's the internal side of it, um, it just tends to be a female dominated world, which is fantastic. But I would like to encourage more, more men to, to get involved in some of those conversations and feel comfortable. So that kind of blends. I feel like I blend the older adult master's athlete and pregnant postpartum. It's, it's kind of a, a sliding scale and continuum. So um, I'm really excited about that. That is really exciting. Um, my wife went through both pregnancies, powerlifting the entire time. Um, and that, that conversation and being able to, to broach those topics is vitally important for us to continue to move forward in that realm. So yeah, it's really there exciting. Was, there was a social media post that came up about how women should be fined for peeing on the platform. And yeah, it was, and it was, it was a female, it was a female coach that had said it and, and there was quite a, a backlog and, and, you know, like there, so there's, there's still some education I think to be had in, in that world, but I was even getting messages. So I've been, I weight lifted up until probably about 32 weeks pregnant. I was obviously changing some of the variables and, and that's what we talk about in the course. But, um, I would get people saying, aren't you afraid you're going to miscarriage? And I was like, what? Like, that literature is so old. Like, I can't believe that this is still like being asked of me. And, um, so yeah, so there's definitely any there. So that's cool that your wife was, was powerlifting through both pregnancies. Cause I'm still lifting three to four times a week and this baby's about to pop out. So. Yep. We, we made a couple changes, some considerations. One of the biggest ones is she's a conventional puller. And as she got more pregnant, we just kept bringing the feet closer to cheating at sumo. Oh, and, uh, 
and it just just kept with it and you, you yeah. make modifications as it goes and that we we ran into the same thing you know aren't you afraid you're gonna hurt the baby aren't you afraid you're gonna miscarriage and uh you know that's still getting perpetuated not just by coaches and and but physicians obg it's the whole community that, that that's still part of the one of the narratives so it, yeah it My needs to be week. addressed yeah, my last weightlifting meet was at eight weeks pregnant. Was I eight or ten? Something like that. But awesome. yeah, I had a high risk OBGYN give me the all clear. The only thing that I was worried about was contact because you're not supposed to be placental abruption can go up if you're in contact sports. But because my body was so used to that contact point of the snatch, it wasn't really a big deal. And PR'd my snatch that day. Nice. It was a good day. Yeah. Good days had by all. And uh, yeah, want to talk to me? Well, you talked about the, the fear of the clinician to even flex a hip past 90 after a, a post-op. You know, so it's like, I, I think that that type of fear where we're talking about a pregnancy is is probably much, much more deeply rooted even within the, the clinician. So just it, it just comes back to, to education. You're just why yeah. you're doing the stuff that you're doing. And in medicine, right, we tend to err on the side of caution until proven otherwise. We saw the same thing in as strength training, resistance training for kids with growth plate stuff, that perpetuation because of theory, but it was disproven. You see the same thing in breast cancer literature where individuals with lymph node resection were told never to lift more than 10 to 15 pounds or participate in resistance training because of risk of lymphedema. And again, that's been debunked, but sometimes that is still being perpetuated. We tend to err on the side of caution until proven otherwise, but then that 15 year knowledge translation gap comes into play and then it's it's this nasty spiral. So these kind of podcasts are great because we can start debunking some of those myths. Where can people find you and, and all of this stuff? What are, yeah, throw out all the, all the channels for these things so that people can connect. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the Institute of Clinical Excellence is on Facebook and Instagram through ice physio. Um, the master's athlete collective is on Instagram at the master's athlete collective. And then you can follow me personally online. If you want to see a pregnant lifter, who's not going to miscarry, um, at Christina underscore Previt. And that's probably the, the three main ways that you can reach me. Awesome. And, and then stave off too. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, at stave off. Yep. Yeah, that'll be there too. If you want to. I know I'm kind of all over the place. Awesome. I don't want to give you like a million different <laughs> no, Instagram all of them. handles. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and then just to, to clarify for people who want to uh, apply and send you information and stuff for the master's athlete collective, you don't have to be actively competing. You don't have to be in a particular sport. That's just regular physical activity and that sort of thing. Correct. Yeah. So if you want to apply to be on the Masters Athlete Collective, oh, I love that you're asking this question. So you just have to send me a message through Facebook, Instagram, email, whatever you want. And usually what I ask for is name, age, activity, or activity highlights. So things that you're proud of, it could be that you ran your first 5K at 70. It could be whatever you want. Then I ask for like words of wisdom and a little bit about your story. So um, I, and then I asked for two pictures. So I asked for like an action shot of you being physically active and then a regular photo that you love of yourself with the idea being that you can take a look at these really hardcore shots and think, well, that person is so unlike me. And then you take a look at their second picture and it's a smiling family with three kids and two grandkids and um, in normal clothes. And you're like, well, shoot, that looks like my Sunday afternoon. So that's kind of the idea between the two photos is to show like, you know, these masters athletes, they're not really that different from you. 
Christina agreed on the webinar to uh, keep the Masters Athlete Collective going for at least the next 11 years until I make Masters for uh, the CPU, given the way the qualifying totals are going. <laughs> well, I'll be there soon enough. Technically, I am in weightlifting, so I'll just apply now. Hey, there you go. <laughs> there you go, yeah. Christina, thank you so much for being on the show. This was This was really, really great. Yeah, you're so welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Our and the podcast or the I'm sorry, the webinar is in the forum now. Um so you can you can catch the recording in the forum and um and it, it was fantastic and and this conversation was fantastic as well. I think that people are going to get a just a lot out of this. So again, thank you so much for being on. Um we we'll have to give you when you come out with some projects down the line or some uh some new literature comes out, we'll have to get you back on and and talk shop again. I would love that. I would love it. Great. We will. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, John. As always. Pleasure. And we will talk soon.